1: Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Uh, Tonight, we're going to be talking to Dr. Dan Magus, a returning guest, who's going to give us an update and current report on what's going on with COVID. Dr. Magus, thank you, as always, for joining us.
0: Well thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. It's always a pleasure to uh to uh, to to discuss this and uh see what we can do to help uh, instruct the uh the audience on what's going on and what they need to think about in the future.
1: And it, it's been such a long year plus that we've been dealing with COVID-19 and it finally looks like uh, some relief is on the way with the vaccinations and with the lessening of the COVID restrictions. Uh, if you could tell us what what's going on now with um, the vaccinations, how are we doing, and what are we doing toward opening up?
0: Well, there's lots of good news coming up. Uh, we're a, one year and four months into the pandemic in the USA. There's 32 million cases, 580,000 deaths. And Ohio itself has 1 million cases and 19,400 deaths. Uh, so it, there's no question about it. There, uh, it's been a long one year, and um, uh, a lot of people have suffered from it, including those people who have had the disease and the COVID and actually recovered from it. Uh, the good news is is that um, the, uh, the governor of Ohio is going to open things up starting in um, uh, June, June 2nd and um the cdc um wants to open things up um pretty soon and uh we're waiting for the exact uh, de- details about that um however even though we're opening it up even though it's clear the case numbers and definitely the deaths are way down uh we're still we're still um we're still getting some people that are are, are ill. uh so we do have a long way to go yet um, we, those people who are fully vaccinated can relax a lot of the strict uh, the, the restrictions, but those that are not vaccinated still have to be careful. Uh, they have to get vaccinated. Number one, number two, they've uh, got to be careful in the meantime, staying away from people wearing a mask. Uh, keep in mind, there's this surge of this Brit Britain variant strain. the b one, one, one seven, um, which is about 60% more transmissible. And more people definitely need to be vaccinated. There's no question about it. Um, we've got, um, up at this point in the U.S., about 59% of people who got at least one dose. I believe it's around 43% in Ohio that got at least one dose. So that the vaccination rate is helping tremendously, and that's a, what's allowing people, at least those when are fully vaccinated, <clears throat> to open up and do things with less restrictions. Now, number one, uh, what is um, fully vaccinated? Well, for the uh, Moderna and the Pfizer, that means two weeks after your second dose. For the J and J, that means uh, two weeks after the one dose. Uh, fewer people are getting the J and J because it's just come, it's just been approved and it's just coming out. But it still is a very effective uh, vaccine. The, uh, the Pfizer and the and the Moderna, 94, 95 percent effective in in avoiding a symptomatic infection and more than 99.5 percent effective in keeping you out of icu or dying so i mean it's um it's a tremendously effective vaccine and far better than anybody ever hoped it would be um the numbers for j and j about 66 percent effective in getting symptomatic disease but 85 percent effective keeping you out of the hospital so it's um, a little weaker, but it's still better, far better than nothing. And if that's what's available, and you only want to get one shot for those people who it's, um, uh, don't have the time and to, to arrange it or don't have the facilities and transportation back and forth, it's really a godsend to get one dose and then you're, then you're pretty set. The
1: uh, issue of vaccination, I know there's a lot of resistance for getting vaccinations, and and uh, in, in checking around with people, I find there are several reasons. Uh, one is political; it seems that there are political beliefs that prohibit people from getting <clears throat> vaccinations. But but there's some other, what I would consider more legitimate reasons. People are are just unsure about not just the efficacy but the safety of this rushed yeah. vaccine. Uh, and, and so those are a little more legitimate than people who just think they want to support a political party. Um, what What is your take with regard to the vaccination resistance and how can we get to herd immunity to get up to around 70 percent?
0: Well, the, the original the original numbers were around 60 percent of herd immunity, but it's gone up. And it may be 70, maybe as high as 80 percent because of the variants that are now around, um, making this more transmissible. Um, The children, um, Pfizer has just recently uh, decreased their uh, their age and got approval to give 12 to 15-year-olds the vaccine. And that's important because children are 24 percent of our population. Uh, Way back a year ago, they were 3% of the cases a year ago. Now they're 22% of the cases. One in five COVID cases now is somebody that's under the age of 18. So it's very important that if we're going to get herd immunity, that children get vaccinated, number one. Number two, there are people who just don't like to be told what to do. I don't don't either, uh, to be honest with you. But you got to keep in mind these are recommendations to keep you healthy, not being told what to do course you can always take or leave recommendations but the recommendations not orders number one number two they're uh, for your benefit and once we get the only way we get rid of covid is to stop the transmission and the only way we're going to stop the transmission is get people immune to the disease um the immunity with the vaccine as we understand it today is more potent and uh, more valuable and probably we will, will find out last longer than the the immunity that people get from the the uh, the active infection itself so the um the the uh, the vaccination is absolutely critical unfortunately the um the models show that herd immunity is closer to 80% which is due to uh, the increased transmissibility of um these these uh, v- variants and the B117, 1. 1. uh, UK variant is really surging throughout the U.S., um, making this a, a, a race, um, to get rid of this, uh, this condition, get rid of this COVID, getting people vaccinated before they have, before it becomes the only, um, variant that's around. And the reason why it's, uh, it's surging is because it, the genetic mutation in the uh, variant make it, <clears throat> uh make it uh easier to spread and it overcomes and just beats the race with the uh, the other variants they just die out and this one takes over so and there's more the, there's uh, more variant than that
1: the the vaccine is the key and uh when when we talk about other pandemics or things going back into the 50s and 60s with polio there is no question that when the vaccine was available people ended up going to it in great numbers. The mass inoculations and the mass uh, sugar cubes they had uh, did finally uh, stamp out polio. Yet the resistance Mm -hmm. we have here, the fact that vaccine is free and easily acceptable or accessible, uh, we we still have people resisting it. Uh, And that could drag out our, our freedom back to the economy and back to the lifestyle we used to know for for some time. Well, the, uh, you mentioned 24, yeah. 24% of the uh, population are children. Um, and the children, if they're not going to be getting vaccinated and they end up uh, being infected with COVID 19, even though it may not uh, affect them as seriously or as violently, uh, how, how are they as far as spreaders go? Do they spread the COVID uh, easily or are they tough spreaders?
0: Absolutely. They, do, they can't spread it. But you've got to remember, there are a small number of children um, under the age of 18, very very young children, uh, uh, grade school children, and high schoolers that are being admitted to the hospital. Occasionally, some of them are sick enough to be in the hospital. So uh, it's it's not totally a benign condition. And there's no question about it. Since many of them are asymptomatic, they still can spread it. And that's the problem. If you're unvaccinated and they're spreading it and you're with them, and you're, um, letting down your guard and not practicing the mitigation, uh, uh, recommendations, you are, you're, you're, you're at risk of getting the condition. The 18 to 24 year old group has the highest incidence of disease now. The 18 to 24 year old age group has the highest incidence per person, per capita, uh, when you measure the, uh, compared to the population. Um, uh so it's that's why it's so important to get uh vaccinations for uh, the younger people. And uh those people over eighteen, it's very important to get them vaccinated because they're the number ones getting the, the the condition and the number one group that's spreading it.
1: Well we're talking to Dr. Daniel Magus, who is a returning guest who is uh, updating us on what's going on with COVID nineteen with regard to the vaccines and with regard to us Putting this pandemic behind us. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Dr. Magus and talking more about what's going on with COVID and how it's spreading and where we're going with it after these words. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Break.
0: Okay now i can talk more about safety i i uh i got into uh a sidetrack there so i can talk more about safety in pregnant women all right and it's important that to know that j and j adenovirus what what those blood clots are what those central venous uh we call them central venous sinus thromboses um uh, what they are and and uh how often it is it's pretty rare But um, I
1: should. Well, let's let's talk about let's come back and talk about that. We'll go right into talking about J&J and how concerned should people be about that? And now back to the advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. We're talking to Dr. Daniel Megas, our expert on COVID-19, telling us what's going on. And we've been talking about the vaccination process. And, uh, Doctor, again, thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Now, you know, when we were talking uh, last segment about the vaccinations and the vaccine sort of the question uh, that's posed is the question of safety and we we think about the johnson and johnson vaccine that was put on hold for a while a uh, couple of questions what was that all about and most importantly now that johnson and johnson is being distributed again is it safe to get johnson and johnson vaccine opposed to any of the other types of vaccines
0: yeah basically yes the pfizer moderna um and especially in the younger people, um, about 50, 60 percent have muscle aches and pains, fever, low-grade temps, things like that. Um, the older people, um, over 60, 65, very, uh, very, they are far less likely to have symptoms of Pfizer and Moderna. But they're all mild and moderate, nothing severe. Now, the J&J, on the other hand, had to be stopped because people were getting strange blood clots. Uh, they were finding that they were getting low platelet levels. And a hemorrhage problem at the same time you're getting a paradoxical clot in the brain, in the cerebral uh, in the central nervous system. What they call cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. What is that? Well, some people will remember when Hillary Clinton, back about five or six years ago, uh, slipped, uh, clunked her head, and a couple two or three years later, she found out she had yeah. a, she had to have yeah she had to have emergency surgery because she had a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis in the back of her brain, uh, leading to an emergency surgery that saved her life. Um, we're finding this happens with the J&J, and it seems to be very similar to a condition called thrombotic penic purpura, which seems to occur uh, in a rare number of people after they get some kind of virus condition, but they're genetically predisposed to get it. It's a rare condition. It's very, very rare, uh, number one. Number two, it's identical to a condition that's rare when you give people heparin for venous thrombosis in the hospital, or if you're giving them heparin to uh, prevent thrombosis in the hospital if you have hip and knee surgery. Rarely a patient will drop their platelets, start to, uh, to bleed, but at the same time, they get these blood, strange blood clots in the central nervous system, and uh, they can be life-threatening. Um, what they did is to stop the uh, the um, the uh, distribution of the vaccine, to study uh, exactly what's going on, and to define the problem. And uh, once they define the problem, there's treatment for it. So uh, so that's why they they uh, restarted giving the vaccine out. It's very rare. I think there was 28. My last count a couple of days ago, 28 count uh, cases of this with the J and J after nine million doses are given around the world. So nine million people have gotten it, and only twenty uh, eight twenty eight people have gotten this unusual rare form of blood c- cerebral and uh, central nervous system clotting That's like three per million so it's very rare if you do get it there's treatment for it and um it, it can't yeah, it, 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 the treatment can be life saving and it is um so that's exactly how how, ask, how, how, it. Long,
1: how long after the injection? Of the J and J vaccine, to four weeks. but yeah, two so to four weeks. it's it's not it's not to stand by it's at delayed. the inoculation station it's, and wait. Yeah,
0: it's a you go home. Yeah, so delayed you back. response. Yeah. No. How,
1: how certain are they that there's a connection between the vaccine and this condition, since it uh, is so oh, rare? Is they're, it they're more of a genetic yeah. thing? Oh, or they're, they're
0: pretty certain. Well, it's pretty certain because the AstraZeneca is the adenovirus vector, and the J and J has the adenovirus vector, and they both have the same uh, rare condition. Uh, it's, you don't see it with Pfizer, you don't see it with Moderna. Uh, we're not sure exactly what it is. There are some German groups uh, studying the problem. There's the uh, J and J vaccines got over a thousand different proteins, and they're human proteins that come come out of the production of the vaccine. And uh, there's some suggestion that the preserver, the the EDTA, uh, may be um, uh, allowing some of these proteins to leak in the central nervous system, causing an immune response in the clotting. There's no question about it that the people probably have a genetic predisposition. It would be nice to know who those are. But, again, it's one out of 350,000 people. It's very, very rare, and you're not going to be able to do uh, studies on 350,000 people to uh, try and catch the one that's going to get it. So um, Right, right.
1: Well, the question it sort of begs the question if you happen to, for some reason, know that you were you had a predisposition, uh, would it behoove you to then take either Moderna or Pfizer? And would, if you would you that knew you protect did you, it, you from you had that a, reaction?
0: If you have a predisposition to blood clotting in the first place, maybe it would be a good idea to uh, get the um, uh, the Moderna and the Pfizer. But the usual blood clots, the usual predisposing factors that we see causing thrombosis in the arm, the leg, and the pulmonary emboli that we see in the emergency rooms, that's not related to the same process that we're seeing here with this uh, J&J um, cerebral venous thrombosis. Um, it has to do with a PF4 uh, 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 platelet antibody that's produced uh, autoimmunity. Autoimmune-wise, and uh, that's the key that shows it's related to that that condition I call TTP and the the rare heparin-induced thrombocytopenia that uh, that occurs rarely in the hospital. So that's a totally different pathophysiology. The uh, the predisposing factors to the usual blood clots are totally different. There's a totally different mechanism. And if you have a predisposition to get blood clots or have had one, maybe you want to get them. Modernum and pfizer i can't say for sure it's going to be any safe uh it's going to make a difference um uh, it, it, i just can't say that now there's no question about it the uh the people who do have a tendency to get thromboses in the arms the legs the pulmonary emboli or have had them already in the past if you catch covid you're more likely to get thromboses all over again so you definitely want to be vaccinated this should not be a deterrent to tell people. Oh, I'm afraid of the vaccine. You're far worse off if you get the COVID. If you have a tendency mm-hmm, to get blood clots, mm-hmm. you're far worse with the, 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 the disease than you are with the vaccine. Now, there's no question. There's another thing. What about pregnant women? And I've known. pregnant I was going to about pregnancy. Right. to get it. And uh, there was a thirty-five thousand study that uh, found it in with the, um, uh, the the messenger RNA, Moderna and Pfizer. That the in the, tr- the third tr- trimester, it's 100 percent safe, and uh, there's no evidence that there's any um, uh, untoward reaction that occurs more than the average uh, in in the population without the vaccination. Now keep in mind, pregnant women mm-hmm. are more, still more likely to have a stillbirth, a miscarriage, preterm birth, the baby smaller than it should be for its gestational age, and. Uh, um so although we're not sure of that we're we're studying that very very carefully so the 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 getting the disease itself possibly may cause some of those problems now the other thing is the pregnancy the women who are pregnant definitely do are sicker they do have mortality um in, increase um increase the icu admissions um an increase of, of eclampsia and preeclampsia um uh, and possibly some of these other things that uh, i talked about they're still studying it to be sure, but the vaccine in the, in that definitely in that third trimester is definitely very, very safe, and they should not be afraid to get it the nice state the the advantage is, is that once the baby is born, the neonate the 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 newborn is immune to covid just like uh the the neon the, the newborns are when the mother gets the flu shot just um and the diphtheria shot. So um there are um advantages definitely to get it when when you're pregnant you can wait to the third semester if you want, but it's a good idea to get it, not be afraid. You know, in
1: a, in our in our last minute here, uh you mentioned the messenger RNA uh, procedure of developing vaccines. Are we going to see more of this with other viruses, the messenger RNA?
0: Yes. Yeah. There's no question about it. You can, um, you can, number one, produce the thing very fast just by taking a bit of the genetic material from the virus that you're, or that you're trying to prevent. Number one. Number two, if it mutates, all you do is take the mutation, slip it and take it out of the, uh, the old one, slip the new one in the new one, and you've got within two weeks, another vaccine. Um, it treats the mutants that fast and you can produce it within months instead of years, uh, for a new uh, condition. So um, there's no question about it that, uh, that 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 the Hungarian woman who works in the it's U.S. Who is responsible for this. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. she is. Uh, she's going to be a candidate for a Nobel Prize
1: someday. Well, saving millions of lives. Well, anyway, Dr. Daniel Megas, as always, thank you for bringing us up to date on what's going on with COVID and vaccinations. And uh, we'll have you back on next month to give us another update. Thank you.
0: Take care. You bet. Good luck. Thank you.
1: Fun. And uh, bye, Dan. Okay, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away. And now, back to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. Uh, we're going to... Welcome a returning guest, Dr. Nika Kabiri from uh, the University of Washington in Seattle. Uh, Nika, thank you for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me back.
1: You know, we, we had you here a couple of um, months ago, back in February actually, uh, talking about your specialty at the university, and that is called de- decision science. Um, and, and why we had you on then and why we have you back on again is to figure out why do People who seem to be well-thought uh, and they're intelligent make such bad decisions. <clears throat> and in your, your area of decision science, like what's going on here? Right now, we're dealing with the uh, COVID-19, which we've been dealing with for over a year. And further, we're dealing now with vaccinations. And believe it or not, to vaccinate or not to vaccinate is a big issue. Where in the past, if medical science came out and said you needed a polio shot or your kids are in college and you need a meningitis vaccination, there'd be no question, but people would get vaccinated. What's going on here, Nika?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think a couple things are going on. First, this vaccine was developed and distributed so quickly. And just the just the logistics of that, the, the, the speed at which it was developed, it kind of... It kind of gives people a little bit more doubt than um, vaccines in the past. But that aside, just putting that aside, I think that we're kind of in a unique um, kind of social uh, situation right now where polarization is at an all-time high. Um, there's a lot of misinformation that's being spread around out there. The Internet didn't exist um, back when these other vaccines were introduced and and so people weren't privy to a lot of the misinformation that was out there, and it didn't spread as quickly, if it did spread at all. Um, so I think that's going on, and of course, that with this politicization, is is just this um, you know kind of this new emerging worldview that you know we've we've all kind of seen kind of popping up um, that you know that seems to to encompass a disbelief that COVID is a big deal, a disbelief that vaccines are going to be useful, and a lot of other political beliefs um, that that may spread, even as far as QAnon or the Big Lie. So there's kind of a a Mm -hmm. different kind of worldview emerging.
1: As you're explaining this, one of the things coming to my mind is, I remember years ago, in prior presidential elections, going back to the 80s and 90s, there is always reference to the silent majority. It, it seems like people are less and less remaining silent. It seems like people are freer to uh, voice their opinions now and I think that's adding to the fact that if we are polarized, having a vocal population is making it more difficult to become unpolarized. Uh, think- have we lost our have we lost our silent majority
2: I think. What we have is, an, they have an opportunity to speak where they didn't before. And I think that's where the internet comes in, is it, silence is kind of, in some respect, it's a choice, like you can choose to be silent. But then in other respects, you may want to speak up or you want may want to share what you think, but not have the, um, the tools or the, the uh, ability to do it. And with social media, anyone can really just kind of get online and become philosopher a thinker a thought leader an expert just by claiming to be one um and so yeah i think i think in a way i guess what i'm saying is i agree that we may be losing the silent majority but it, it not so much because people are wanting to speak out more maybe but but probably because they can't which is a good thing on one in one hand you know it's, it's good to have a, a an avenue for your voice but um but on the other hand, when that when that voice comes with, with a lot of misinformation and harmful, dangerous misinformation, that could be that could be deadly.
1: There's a local newspaper here that every day puts out a political question and every day there is a response by hundreds of readers. And every day they publish a pie chart showing how <clears throat> how all of these people responded to this political question. And, and essentially, it, it points out that uh, the silent majority now, uh, on the other end of the spectrum, we have the results of instantaneous political polling. So yep. we know what most of our neighbors think instantly. Yep. And how, how does that affect how we think and act? And then how do we run that across the goal line to vaccinating the um, the public here with regard to the officially safe vaccines that will end this economic nightmare for us. It, it all seems to be contradictory constantly.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there. this is a really interesting point. There's an article. It wasn't an article. It was just a really great interactive page on the New York Times where you could plug in your address, and it will tell you whether you live in a political bubble. It will tell you what proportion of, of your neighbors that are liberal conservative or in between. And you're right. I mean, it's instantaneous, um, the information that you get. Um, and it. we shouldn't underestimate the power of our networks or our communities or where we socially belong in influencing the decisions that we make or the beliefs that we have. Um, bandwagons are bandwagons for a reason because we all have, we, all, we feel secure in following the majority. We feel secure in going along with what those around us are doing. There's safety in that. Even if that safety is leading us off a cliff, you know, we're, at least we're with the group. Um, and I think there, there's something to be said about knowing what other people think, or at least believing that you know what other people in your community think that could have a very profound impact on your belief. Whereas when that information wasn't available in the past and you were just speculating and there was just kind of a lot of, just a lack of knowledge um, it it's a lot less likely that you're going to you know hop on any bandwagon because you don't really see one. And technology the, a lot of things for us, and that's that's well,
1: well it, it, it has. It,
2: yeah,
1: but but I'm I'm concerned because it raises another issue. Uh, is is the fact that you know be, before we had scientific proof or at least uh, scientific acceptance of the fact that the world was round, uh, everybody. Was sort of a flat world kind of a person, and if you had instantaneous polls before Columbus, uh, you would see that yeah, every you know 99% of the people believe the world is f- flat. So that, that puts us in a situation that one we can lean and look toward very believably to the results of polls, and find comfort where people are basically sharing our opinions but it doesn't address whether or not those opinions are correct or not we we end up still facing the truth and trusting the source for that truth and exactly. uh, even now with with regard to the 2020 presidential election uh, we hear the term the big lie that mm-hmm. the presidential election was conducted within standards and it was actually not stolen. That there are a number of people who believe that there are a lot of invisible or secretive votes that do not measure up to the standard of evidence that we lawyers would look toward. So uh, right. well, what are the average people to do when they're confronted with truth and trust on one side and that is starkly ringing against what the belief is of most of your friends and neighbors? Well, what is one to do?
2: Yeah, and when you're when you ask that question, do you mean how is one to stay aware of what the truth is?
1: Which opens another question. Yeah, we, we can never discuss all yeah. of this stuff in one in one interview. Yeah, it's
2: because complex. Because every
1: every time we, so many facets to it, uh, and um, the, the the question is deep down in our inner soul where we we talk to ourselves with our own running monologue of of personal consciousness. Uh, we're, we're questioning these things, and we find it's very easy to exchange what everyone else is doing for our belief and just go along with it mm-hmm. and not be hassled. Don't bother me. Let's mm-hmm. just, If that's mm-hmm. what they want to think, let them think it, and off we go. But you give up the right to know the truth and maybe the fact that we need to know the truth, and then maybe there's a feeling creeping in to our culture that we don't need to know the truth. We just need to know what most people think is the truth, but yeah. I, I think we're going to take a. Sh- it's time to take a short break. Hold on to all that information. We're talking to Dr. Nika Kabiri from the University of Washington, uh, where she is a professor of decision science, and we're going to come back and talk about the science of of how humans in our culture make decisions. We'll be right back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK. The Advocate on The Answer. We'll be back. Don't go away. And now, back to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. We're talking to Dr. Nika Kabiri from the University of Washington, where her specialty is decision science. And before we go any further, Dr. Kabiri, Tell us what is included in decision science. I think we all make decisions. We all know what science is, but what are the components that make up your specialty?
2: Right, right. So decision science is really just the study of the process of decision making, and there's um, there are multiple disciplines that inform that. So, you know, behavioral economics is kind of a very hot, popular discipline um, where they, you know, they study psychology and the impact of psychology on decision-making. So I, I borrow some from there, but there's also a lot in sociology, the study of norms, norm enforcement, institutional analysis, um, and rational choice theory, um, game theoretic models that explain social phenomenon, things like that that um, I also employ. Um, but there's also, you know, cultural components to decision-making, how cultural of influences um, impact what we what we decide to do. So there's anthropology in there, and you know there's a lot in physiology too, studying the impact of hormonal changes on decision making, aging, diet, sleep, depression. Um, all of these things impact decision making. So I pull a little bit from all of that to try to really understand how we can make better decisions and also avoid the pitfalls that come from just being human. Is <clears throat>
1: There, At the end of the day, after studying everything about human decision-making and incorporating all of these various sciences and uh, specialty areas, can you conclude, are there some uh, ways we should be considering the right way to make decisions, especially when we're faced with all these politically-laced opinions that actually confront what we have always believed to be the truthful, trusted science. Uh, what um, what guidelines do we have that we should use to make sure we're making decisions correctly?
2: If you can right. even
1: state that, um, that's big. That's a big, yeah, big challenge. It
2: is. It is a big challenge. And there's so many ways in which it could go wrong. But I think it all really just boils down to one thing. Um, is well, it boils down to a few things. But one that I can easily talk about right now that I think would be really useful is that we are super efficient at making decisions. I mean, if the human brain is anything, it's a, it's a super efficient machine. It uses up a, um, very little energy to, to make the choices that, say, a computer might make, you know. It's, it's So it's very fast. It cuts a lot of corners, and that's a good thing if you are trying to get from point A to point B really quickly. But it's a bad thing when you need to get from point A to a better place than point B. And... So sometimes what we fail to do is recognize that we are moving too fast or thinking too quickly. Um, For instance, we assume that we have all the information we need for a lot of the decisions we make. we It's very, um, almost unnatural to stop and think to yourself, all right, I need to do more research before I make a choice. I need to kind of examine more before I make a choice. Like if we think about like even um, some of the conspiracy theorists that are out there who claim they're doing a lot of research and they're exploring and they're learning and they're getting online and they're researching, um, they really probably aren't researching everything. They're researching enough to where they've formed an opinion, made a decision, and then moved on. Um, it's really kind of unnatural and hard to stop and, and imagine that you there's more to this story that you don't know. So that's one thing that we can all do is to, to really open ourselves up to the fact that we don't probably know as much as we think we know. And we probably hardly ever know as much as we need to know to make the best decisions. Um, but it's it's a constant... I think the mindset to adapt is that we, we should never really feel comfortable believing that we have made... we've formed the right conclusions. If we can constantly strive to get closer to the truth, which is absolutely elusive then we're constantly learning. We're constantly getting that information that we need to get in order to make better choices. But as soon as we've decided we know, we know it was true, we know it's right, the election was stolen, vaccines are, um, you know, are laced with, you know, these microchips. As soon as we decide we know these things and we stop learning, mm-hmm. then we're in a lot of trouble. We're in a lot
1: of trouble. I, well, I asked that last time, back in February when we talked. Uh, my big question was, why do seemingly intelligent people so readily reject the traditional sources of uh, authoritative information and and welcome and rapidly embrace these extreme conspiracy theories? Uh, yeah. What What's that explanation? And yeah, there's a term that you use called inaction in inertia. Is that something that plays into this somewhere?
2: Right. So that that may play into this. Um, so what inaction inertia really is about? It's it's just you know inertia is basically in the laws of physics. The body at rest stays at rest. The body in motion stays at motion. In motion. I mean, I think a lot of our decisions are a lot a lot like that, and research bears this out that if we make um a decision to not vaccinate against the flu, you know, for the last ten years just by virtue of the fact that it just never has occurred to us or we just don't we decide against it, then when the COVID vaccine comes up, I wonder, and I'd like to see some research on this, I wonder if, you know, those those folks who are just just in the habit of just regularly deciding against doing something like getting vaccinated would continue to do that. You know, stay in that Past have inertia in that way, um, and beliefs are the same way. I mean, if you believe, you know, in conspiracy theories generally, if you tend to believe that there's, if you embrace a world view where, you know, there's these powerful forces that are influencing the things that happen to us, then you know, the likelihood of believing those types of theories in the future are much more likely as well. So, and there's kind of inertia there.
1: I think almost when I hear about inertia, and we talk about uh, inaction inertia, it sounds like an extremely polite way of saying people are very comfortable with what's going on, and they don't want to be bothered Mm -hmm. with having to change Mm -hmm. or having to study and research and form an opinion that they know in their heart is reasonable and based upon research, their personal research, so that we can almost say that uh, they're accepting the lazy alternative to just let's go with the flow and not change. The path, of least change. Resistance. path yeah, yeah. and the most And the most pleasant thing to do to make the, their next 24 hours comfortable is to not hassle. Yeah. Are, are, are we seeing a lot of that? Why, well, you talked earlier yeah. in, in the last segment, we're talking about the polarization we're experiencing. How can that be comfortable? Uh, if you're confronting yeah. people all the time, it doesn't seem to add up.
2: It doesn't. But you make a really good point, and then we're looking at very much, and this is, again, part of human nature. Some of us do this more than others, but I think we all do this to some extent where we really focus on the short-term impact of our choices, our short-term rewards. It's almost like we're hardwired to think in the short term and look for feedback or rewards of our decisions that happen more immediately and overvalue those compared to the rewards of our decisions that might come way down the road. So the long-term thinking is kind of undervalued, and the behavioral economic term for that is delay discounting, where we delay, where we discount the value of something, of the reward that we will get after some delay, Um, and... It really takes a lot of work. You said the word lazy. That's that's you know kind of lazy, but we are. It's harsh, but you know the human brain is not. It's lazy because it's efficient, because being a lazy is efficient in a lot of ways, and so we we you know revert back to that kind of easy path. Um, It's not easy to override our natural tendencies and focus and think. Um, But, unfortunately, it is necessary. mm -hmm. It is right now so necessary.
1: Well, we're we're talking to Dr. Nika Kabiri uh, from the University of Washington in beautiful Seattle, Washington. Uh, I'd like to thank her for joining us tonight. Nika, thank you so much, and we'll have you on again because human behavior is what it's all about right now because you said, and I agree, we're polarized. And we're watching the way things are going either one way or the other. And we'll see what happens in a few months. But uh, ideally, we'll get past this COVID, reopen, and get back to normal. Now, Nika, thank you for joining us tonight.
2: Well, thank you for having me, Nick. I always enjoy talking with you.
1: And likewise. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a safe and healthy week. And we'll see you next week. Good night.
2: Or in my drifting days after the war, I found a tea room north of the Mozambique shore. Worn Persian carpet on the sandalwood floor. Rope pointed slippers by the bamboo door. On the wall, a faded picture of a movie queen, torn from the pages of some ancient magazine. Sleeping parrot, dreaming parrot dreams And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset Sat and drank my fresh mint tea
1: With nothing to do until morning And only my mind